Hello again, everybody. It's great to talk to you. My name is Brian. If we don't know each other, I'm the pastor at Mount Hope's Belmont campus. Just want to say thank you for listening to our podcast. This week, we are almost done with our walk through the story of Nehemiah. And through this story, we've been talking a lot about how we rebuild our lives when things are difficult, when there's trials and struggles and things aren't going right. Well, this week we talk about something different. The question for us this week is how do we deal with the successes? How do we respond when things do go right and we are able to rebuild? The people of Israel in, this, in these verses we're going to look at, that's where they find themselves. Things have gone right. Things have gone well. And they need to respond. And as it turns out, they respond quite well. And you and I can learn a thing or two from them. So I'm glad you're listening. I hope you'll listen closely because I believe that God has something that he would like to say to you. I have a little trivia question for you this morning. I have no prizes uh, for whoever gets this right. The prize will be the warmth in your heart that can only come from being right about something. Uh, but but here's, the, here's the question for you. Uh, in 1952, some of you are like, I'm already out. 1952, I don't know what the answer is. In 1952, uh, the polio epidemic had reached its peak in the United States. In fact, there was uh, over 50,000 cases, 57,000 cases of polio that year. There were 3,000 deaths from the ter- that terrible disease and over 20,000 cases of paralysis uh, that year. Now, that's 1952. By 1961, there were only 161 cases in the United States, and around the world, the disease had been pretty much eradicated. Now, the reason that happened, as some of you know, is that a vaccine was created, a polio vaccine was created. Now, here's your question. What is the name of the man, and we've put his picture up here, uh, who created the polio vaccine? Who knows? Jonas Salk, Jonas Salk Jeanette. You're, there's, see, there's that warm feeling in your heart, right? You're right. <laughs> Some people didn't know that, and you knew it. You're better than them. And so uh, Jonas, Jonas Salk is the one. Just kidding. Jonas Salk is the one uh, who created the vaccine. Now, here's a question for you. And here's a question for you. In 1954, the Nobel Peace Prize was given out for polio research. Does anyone know who won the Nobel Peace Prize for polio research? This one's much harder. Three scientists who were not really associated with Jonas Salk, and the last names were Enders, Robbins, and Weller. Has anyone ever heard of Enders, Robbins, and Weller? I hadn't. A couple years ago, my wife, uh, who knows of my fondness for what I always call the airport books, those like leadership and business books that you only see sold at the airport, uh, bought me a great airport book called Give and Take by a man named Adam Grant, who is a professor at uh, the uh, Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And he wrote in his book, Give and Take, about Jonas Salk and some of the things that happened around the discovery of the polio vaccine. So what's interesting is when the Nobel Peace Prize was handed out, uh, he did not receive it. Three other scientists received that award. Now, over the years, many scientists who were a part of polio research have been inducted to the National Academy of Sciences, which is kind of like the Hall of Fame for scientists. There's one person who worked really hard on polio research who has been excluded 
from the National Academy of Sciences. Any guesses as to who's been excluded? Jonas Salk. Now, here's the question. If you were at your local pub and it was trivia night and the question was asked, who invented the polio vaccine, the right answer would be Jonas Salk. Uh, If you're on Jeopardy and they say, this person invented the polio vaccine, the correct question is, who is Jonas Salk? If you're playing Trivial Pursuit and you get the question, who invented the polio vaccine, the answer is Jonas Salk. So why is it that the Jeopardy question and the answer in the board game and the answer at trivia night is not the one who won the big awards for polio research and who was elected into the National Academy of Sciences. Why did that happen? If you've been with us over the last few weeks, excuse me, you know we've been walking through this story in the book of Nehemiah. And we've we've titled this series, Rebuild. And what we've been talking about is uh, Nehemiah, who led a massive rebuilding project around the city of Jerusalem in his day. So this is a man that lived about 2,500 years ago. And if you remember, at this point in their history, the Israelites have been enslaved and, and uh, under the control of other nations for a, a number of generations. First, they were under a ruthless group called the Babylonians who completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The temple, everything was gone. And then they were under, and currently they're under a group of people known as the Persians. The Persians are still enslaving the Israelites, but they've been more lenient. They've allowed the Israelites to rebuild the temple. And now under Nehemiah, the people are rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And we've asked ourselves the question. We all come to the place in our lives where we have to rebuild something in our lives, whether that's our finances, it's our marriage, it's our friendships with other people, it's just our our own sense of of self-worth and well-being. We come to these points in our lives where we have to rebuild portions of our life. And we've asked ourselves this question in this series, how do we rebuild our lives in a godly manner? How do we rebuild families and relationships in a godly way? Well, how is it that God wants us to do it? And we've talked about all the hardships and how to fight oppression, and how to restore our relationship with God, confession, and all of those things. But now in the story, we come to a very different moment, a very different time for the people, for the Israelites, and for Nehemiah. Here's where we are in chapter 12. In chapter 12, there's no more struggle. There's no more oppression. In fact, things are going very well for Nehemiah and the people. They're going very well. The wall has been rebuilt. Their enemies that were threatening to kill them and to stop the work of the wall have all gone away. The people have, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you've learned, the people have restored their relationship with God. They've asked God for forgiveness. God has granted it. They've celebrated the old festivals, the old feasts that they hadn't celebrated in generations, remembering how good God is. So here they are. The wall is built, the relationship between the people and God is restored, and so they're in this pivotal moment where now they're no longer dealing with the difficulties and the oppressions and the hardships, but they're in a moment where they have to figure out what is the right way to deal with success. What's the right way to act when everything goes right and things happen the way they're supposed to happen? And the relationship is restored, and the friendship is rebuilt, and the finances fall into place. 
And the doctor walks in and says, good news, you're cured. How do you deal with the triumph in life? How do you deal with the success in life? That's where the people are. And as you think back to this story of Jonas Salk that we talked about earlier, it just so happens that when he was at the point of dealing with his greatest success, he made a mistake that separated him and created distance between him and the people he had worked with and the scientific community. He did something in that moment that created distance between him and the people that he had been closest to and the other people that had been working with him. And the thing that you and I have to be careful of is the mistake that Jonas Salk made in that moment is the exact same mistake that you and I are prone to make when we experience good things in our lives. And I don't just mean the giant triumphs. I don't just mean whatever the equivalent in my life or your life is of finding the polio vaccine or if we'll ever have that sort of high moment in our life. But the small good things, when things happen correctly, when things go right, we all have those moments in our life too. When good things happen, and the question is, how do we react in those moments? What does God want us to do at that point in our life? Most of us are prone to make the exact same mistake that Jonas Salk did. But in Nehemiah chapter 12, the Israelites, God's people, I think sometimes we're so used to pointing to the Israelites in the Old Testament and just talking about all the mistakes that they make. But here they don't make a mistake. Here they are able to avoid the mistake that you and I are prone to make and that Joan, and similarly, Jonas Salk made in his moment of great triumph. And so we're going to look together at the two things that the people of God do, that the Israelites do in the moment of great success, that is the right thing to do. And then we'll talk about this mistake that you and I are prone to making and how we might avoid making it in our lives. Nehemiah chapter 12, I warned you earlier in the service, there's going to be a list of names, and these names are important. And as in previous chapters, I'm going to read them, and I'm going to do it with great conviction, and we're all going to pretend I said them correctly, okay? <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... They sought the Levites, those are the religious leaders, in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the village of the Netaphilites, and also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And they purified the people and the gates in the wall. Then I, that's Nehemiah, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah. And Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, 
Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milialai, Galialai, Maai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them at the fountain gate. They went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maseiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonan, Machijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Now listen to this. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now, why list all that out? Why list all that out? In these verses, where the people set up for the dedication of the wall, we see the Israelites do two things. Two things that help them handle this moment of triumph and success correctly. Two things that allow them to handle this moment of great success so that their relationship with God was enhanced rather than put distance between themselves and God. They could have made a mistake in this moment, the same mistake that you and I are prone to make. And when we make that mistake, all we do is distance ourselves from the Lord. But what the people do here is they respond correctly, and they do it in two ways. And by doing this, they bring intimacy between themselves and the Lord. The first thing the people do here is they celebrate. How do you handle success? There's nothing wrong with a big celebration. If something goes well in your life, big or small, there is nothing wrong with getting together and enjoying that moment and celebrating success. In fact, that's what we see the people do here. And the reason I think that all these names are here and all these directions are present, if you caught it in those verses, Nehemiah sets up two giant choirs. And then he lists out all the names of how he lined everybody up. It's just like when you're going to celebrate a wedding, right? Most of the time we take everybody and we line them up and put them exactly where we want them to go. Everybody knows where they stand. Everybody knows where they sit. This is an important celebration. This is a big deal. There are lists of people that are invited and should be there. And they all have a place to go. The same is here, is true here. This isn't just a random celebration. They didn't just say, hey, at 7 o'clock, let's get together. We'll have some snacks and some coffee, and we'll all be happy about the wall. This is a planned celebration. This was a great moment. 
And so the people did the right thing. And they got together and had a great big celebration. The wall around the city of Jerusalem had been rebuilt at this point. But the people had not yet moved into the city. In fact, they had just right before the dedication started to move back into the city. And so most people lived outside of the city wall. So there was the temple, the biggest building in the city, and then there was the wall around the city of Jerusalem. But most people at this point were still living outside of the city in villages and towns that they had set up temporarily. And so Nehemiah says in these verses that he goes out into these villages and towns and gathers everybody and organizes them together. And then he gives them a path that they're to take upon the wall. He takes some of the people and he puts them in choir number one. And choir number one starts on the southern tip of the wall and they work their way north to the temple. And then choir number two, choir number two starts on the west side of the wall and they work their way up to the temple. And there is great rejoicing and there is a great celebration and there are instruments and singing and the people are walking up all converging on the temple of God where there is a giant party. And the Bible says that the joy in Jerusalem was heard far away. Have you ever been down in the city of Boston or maybe in a, in, in a city and there's a concert or something happening at, a, at an outdoor stadium? And you're not in the concert or you're not at the sporting event, uh, but you're somewhere in the vicinity. And all of a sudden, while you're 10 blocks away, 12 blocks away, off in the distance, you hear this giant roar of the crowd. You, you hear it and you know somebody scored or, or someone played the best song or something happened big. And you're not sure what happened, but you can hear the joy of the crowd. Sometimes if you've ever been down in Boston when there's a game happening at Fenway Park, you don't have to be in the stadium to hear what the sound is when someone hits a home run or the Red Sox score a run. You can hear that crowd blocks away. And I think that's probably what it sounded like in the city of Jerusalem. People that were in villages and towns outside the city of Jerusalem could hear that roar, could hear the joy, the celebration that's happening in the city. And this is the first thing the Israelites do, and they're correct in doing it. And you and I should do it as well. When something goes right in your life, when there's a success, when there's a triumph, there's nothing wrong with celebrating. But it's the second thing that the Israelites do here that's really the key. The second piece they do that you and I often forget. We have no problem celebrating. Celebrating is a good time. But it's the second piece they do that is key to their right response. The Israelites, they not only celebrate here. They not only throw a big party. But we read right there in verse 27 that the reason they gather is to dedicate the wall to God. And they're coming together to dedicate the wall to God. Why is that significant? Here's what, they, here's what happens in dedication. And we do dedications today. We dedicated this church building once we finished renovating. Uh, we dedicate children to the Lord. We do dedications today. And two things happen in dedication. The first is we come together and we give God credit for the work. And that's what the people are doing. They come together and they give God credit 
for the work. Now, it would have been really easy for the Israelites in this moment to look at the wall and to remember all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into building that wall. And to all get together and throw a giant party and get those big novelty scissors and cut a big ribbon and say to themselves, look at everything that we have done. Look at what happens when we all get together and Nehemiah leads us and we all work hard. We picked up these stones. We put them together. People came and tried to kill us and we fought them off. Look at everything that we have done. That would have been such an easy attitude for them to take. It's an easy attitude for us to take in our lives. When things go right and things go well, to look at those things and say, hey, look what we've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what we've done together. Someone uh, told me about this TV show that's out there. I'm not telling you you should watch it. I'm just telling you it's out there, okay? It's called The Simpsons. And there's an old episode of The Simpsons that a friend told me about where the family is gathered around the dinner table. And uh, the mom there, Marge, she says to the son, Bart, Bart, why don't you say grace? And Bart bows his head and says, dear God, we paid for this food ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Amen. Now, that is a very easy attitude for us to take in life. We're in church, so we're kind of abhorred by that prayer. But that's an easy attitude for us to take in life. And the people could have easily had that attitude. They did a ton of work to build this wall. It was not easy. And it wasn't like God picked up all the stones and put them together. They had to do that work. But they don't take credit for themselves in this moment. They give the credit to God. And the second thing they do in dedication, the thing that we do when we dedicate something, is they take the work and they give it back to God for his purposes. So not only do they not take credit for it, they give God the credit. They take the work, which is the wall, and through this joyful celebration and rejoicing and dedication, they give back the wall to God for his purposes. They are saying in their celebration, God, this is your wall and your work for you to use for your purposes. There's a pastor uh, named Pastor Bob Wise uh, who is the head of our uh, district. We're part of the Assemblies of God and Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, we're all one district, and he's the pastor in charge of the district. And I heard him say once something that I think is so helpful. He said that dedication, whenever we dedicate something, is transfer of ownership. Transfer of ownership from us to God. So we come together and we say, God, this is yours. It's like when we dedicate a baby on the stage in a church service. What we are saying to God and what we are saying publicly is, God, this child is a good gift from you. We don't have the child and hold the child up and say, look at the result of the laws of natural science. We say, God, this is a good gift from you that comes from you. And we are dedicating these parents and this child to your service. And that's exactly what the people are doing here. They're coming together and dedicating the wall, giving God the credit for the work, and turning it all over to him. 
Jesus did this in his ministry. If you go back and read the accounts of Jesus Christ as he healed and as he taught, he was constantly pointing people to his Father in heaven. Not healing and saying, look what I've done, but healing and saying, look what the Father has done through me. One of his last prayers before he goes to the cross in John 17, his Father, glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you. God, work through me in this death and resurrection that I'm about to walk through so that you might be glorified and you might be honored. The Israelites respond correctly here, throwing the great celebration and dedicating the work to God. And it's exactly what Jesus did when he was on this earth through his death and resurrection, bringing glory to his Father who is in heaven. In 1955, Jonas Salk was at the height of his popularity. And he held a press conference. And everybody was excited about the press conference. You think about all the work that went into creating this vaccine. It was not just Jonas Salk, but he had a lab at the University of Pennsylvania with six researchers who worked tirelessly to help produce the vaccine. His mentor, a guy by the name of Thomas Francis, led a nationwide trial of the vaccine where 1.8 million children participated and 64,000 volunteers and tens of thousands of school workers and tens of thousands of healthcare professionals around the country all participated in this trial. And then, of course, there was the work of those three scientists who won the Nobel Peace Prize, who were the first to grow the polio vaccine in a test tube, I mean, the virus in a test tube, so the vaccine could even be created. And Jonas Salk stood up in, in 1955. The room was packed wall to wall. His six researchers were in the front row, the ones who had slaved with him and worked with him, and they were all set together in the front row. And he stood in front of the world and talked about the great work of one person, himself. And the world rejoiced. And he was a hero. And certainly he did a lot of great work. But in that moment, he made a mistake that alienated him, even though he was a hero in the eyes of the world, it alienated him from his colleagues. And one observer has said in that moment, one person sitting in the room said, he went from, to me from being a father figure to an evil father. And another person said, coming out of the room, he committed one of the unwritten commandments, or he broke one of the unwritten commandments of scientific research, which is always share the credit. And so even though history remembers him as this great uh, man, he was a great man who developed this vaccine, in that moment he created this error that caused distance between himself and the colleagues and the people within the scientific community. And it wasn't until 50 years later that Peter Salk, his son, who's an AIDS researcher, stood up in front of a group of people at the University of Pennsylvania and said, I just want everyone to know that the polio vaccine was a collaborative effort done by many, many people that the scientific community started to heal. And here's the challenge for you and for me. When good things happen in our life, 
And triumph happens in our life. I don't think for a second that Jonas Salk got up there and he thought, I'm going to really show them. I'm going to take all the credit and, 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 and stick it to them. I think all he remembered was all the blood, sweat, and tears he had put in. And he just forgot that there were other people that had done the same thing. And the same thing can happen in your life and my life. Where we experience the triumph, we experience the success, we experience the good things in life, and all we remember and all we think about are all the blood, sweat, and tears that we put into it, all the junk that we went through to get to a place where we're now in a good spot, all the trials that we faced, and all the struggles that we walked through to get to a good place, and now that the, that the, the disease is gone, or the marriage is restored, or the family is healed, and the friendships are put back together, and the finances are are back in order and our career is back on track and we just have walked out of a season of loneliness and depression and now we're in a good place emotionally. When we experience those moments of triumph and success, if we are not careful, all we will remember in that moment is the hard work that we did, the hard things that we walked through, and we end up ascribing glory and credit to people other than the God who deserves it. Any good gift in your life is from God in heaven. Any good thing that you experience in your life is from God in heaven who loves you and cares for you. But what happens is, is we look out in, at our world and we end up taking all of those good things and giving the glory and the credit to people other than God. Who brought healing in your life? Doctors? Who led you out of loneliness and depression into a good place? Was it just the medicine? Was it the counselor? Who's the one who put your finances back in order? Was it just a coincidence that one day you met the person who became your best friend and your spouse? Was it just a coincidence that one day you received a tax return bigger than you thought you were going to get that just happened to cover some bills that you didn't know how you were going to pay? Is that just a coincidence that happens in our life? Is that fate? Is that luck? Or is God in heaven behind it all? Is he the one who is working through the doctors? Is he the one who's working through the counselor? Is he the one who's working through the medicine? Is he the one who's providing? Is he the one who's God? your life? Is he the one who deserves all the credit and the glory for the good things that you and I experience? You see, the Israelites in this moment of triumph and success remembered to do something that you and I often forget to do. That is, they celebrated the victory, but they also remembered to give all the glory and the credit and the triumph Back to God. And in our lives, it's so easy for us to blame God when things go wrong. God, where were you? Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you stop this? Why didn't you, why didn't you stop all of this from happening? But when things go well, to give all the glory and all the credit to ourselves and to the people around us, has God redeemed and restored your life? 
then it is up to us to give him the credit for that and to dedicate our lives back to him. Has God restored your family? Then it is up to us to honor him and thank him and take your family and dedicate it back to him. Has God provided for you financially? Then it is up to us to thank God for what he's done and to take all of our finances and resources and dedicate them back to him the way he's called us to. Has God helped you emotionally? Has he brought you through a difficult period? Has he brought healing in your life? Has he led you out of loneliness? Has he led you out of depression? Has he brought satisfaction and significance back to your life? Then it is up to us to thank him for that work and to dedicate our lives back to him for his glory. So how do you deal with success and triumph in your life? How do you deal with the good things in your life? Rejoice and celebrate those things. But don't forget to dedicate the work back to God. Don't forget to thank God for what he's done. And don't forget to take the work and put it back in his hands. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, just to bow your head and close your eyes and to think with me for a moment. What are the good things in your life? What are the triumphs and the joys and the successes? And if you say, I have none, I would suggest to you that God has some good things in your life, that God has brought good things into your life, joy into your life, triumph into your life. Where are those things in your life? If you desire intimacy with God, if you want to draw close to him, then we need to be careful not to make the mistake of celebrating those things and then giving credit to everybody but God. We need to remember to celebrate those things and give all the glory, all the honor, and the entire work back to God for his purposes. How foolish would it have been for us a couple of years ago to walk through the renovation of this whole facility over a year and a half and then to finish the whole thing and to come in here on Sunday mornings and say to ourselves, look what we have done. No, we come together and we say, look what God has done. And how foolish are we in our lives when good things happen and we look at those things and we say, look what we've done. Look what fate has brought. Look at what luck has brought. What a coincidence. Look what the doctors have done. And we forget to give God the glory and the honor that he is due. Where in your life are you forgetting to honor God for what he's done? Where in your life are you not dedicating back to God the good things that he's given to you? Where in your life do you need to come back to the Lord and say, God, I am sorry because you have given me this good gift and I have not said thank you. And so this morning is the morning I say thank you to you, God. Thank you for this family that you have given me. Thank you for this marriage. Thank you for these kids. Thank you for the job. Thank you for the friendship. Thank you for the, for the emotional stability. Thank you for the good things, God, that you have given to me. As we do, we will draw close to God and experience an intimacy 
Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from the Belmont campus of Mount Hope. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us each Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you'd like to know more about Mount Hope Christian Center with campuses in Burlington and Belmont, Massachusetts, you can visit our website at www.mounthope.org.